eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Oh, oh, they're sitting there and they see their son, who's 16 years old, who wants to be a go-kart racer. Hey, wait, you should try this thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, oh man, I feel like I'm on the Peacock Pit Box. Oh, excellent. <laughs> These are nice. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today, back here at our NBC Sports Charlotte studios, where we'll be taping NASCAR America's Motorsports Hour in a few hours. But before then, one of the analysts... <laughs> On NASCAR America's Motorsports Hour tonight, along with A.J. Elmendinger and host Chris Devoto, is Parker Kligerman. Welcome back to the podcast, Parker. Appreciate it. I don't know. When did we last do this? Like a year ago? I was just looking. So I hosted uh, Sirius XM this morning, and we used Skype, and I called up Skype, and the, the last call I had was, this also says something about my Skype habits, was March of 2018 with Parker Kligerman. But we might have done Monday Morning Donuts. We did do Donuts probably yeah. once or twice. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. But the last time on this Zoom H6 recorder, but not with these headsets. <laughs> These are high class, man. This is, I, I feel like, uh, like I said, we're like on the Peacock Pit Box or, you know, like we're air traffic control. Like, you know, 10, 9 or Zulu, 278 heading. <laughs> Love Sorry. the illusions. Uh, yeah, anytime I can draw a comparison to the Peacock Pit Box <laughs> with the NASCAR <laughs> NBC podcast, that's it's huge big. praise. Yeah, very high praise. So uh, you just came from Gaunt Brothers Racing. Yep. Up in Mooresville. Yep. Where you were doing a seat fitting. Yes, for the Sonoma car. So our road course car. We uh, we will be doing our next race at Sonoma. So we just raced the Coke 600. And we'll be doing, I think it's 12 or 13 races. I should know that number, but it's one of those two. Uh, all season. And I'm in a very fortunate position where, um, you know, Marty Gaunt has committed to trying to build this race team, Gaunt Brothers Racing, and do it in the right way, right? Like he's not got – he didn't buy a charter and decide, well, we're just going to run – all the time and kind of run to the, the budget, you know, whatever the charter pumps out. He's saying, no, you know what? I want to run well when I show up and I want to build this race team in performance. So he's like, what's the 12, ra-? you know, he looks at the business model and what he can put together sponsor wise and all those things and says, all right, we can do 12 or 13 races. Where should we go? And then it's like, all right, well, we obviously go to Daytona 500. It pays the most. This year helps pay for us with that, that great finish in 15th. Helps uh, when you make the race in dramatic yes, fashion. Yes, dramatic fashion, did. which yes. was cool. We had a great sponsor with the Olympics uh, with Toyota. And, you know, then we decided when we looked at the beginning of the year, we're like, you know, the new package, that sort of thing, we should go to those mile and a halfs just to experience it. You know, God forbid we pick up a sponsor and they want to go to five mile and a halfs later in the year. You know, we uh, – we just want to be prepared for that and experience it. It was great for me, selfishly, because I got to bring it back here to the NBCSN side and be like, hey, you want to know what the new package is like? I'm racing it. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's been cool. And, uh, yeah, we've just, we've just, you know, been tr- slowly getting better. But the road courses are big. You know, we ran our best races last year with the road courses. Uh, so I'm excited to go back to those. The Coke 600, the first half, we, wa- we basically finished top 20 in the Coke 
three hundred. <laughs> we we just didn't we didn't execute the next three hundred miles. Well, what actually happened was it, it uh, wasn't your fault. It was no, a mechanical we, thing. Yeah, we had a left front suspension failure. Restart after the break, right? This is crazy. I'm running like top twenty five easy, top twenty when I get a good restart. We fringed outside the top fifteen. And I mean we're beaten. When we finished stage one, I think we finished twenty first or twenty third and we were running in the top 20, but a bunch of guys took new tires. And I came on the radio and I said, guys, no matter what happens from here, we just beat $100 million in funding. <laughs> like, this is kick-ass. <laughs> and I mean, not to put us down anyway, but we're a very small race team. Our chassis is an old MWR chassis, right? We don't never been in the wind tunnel. We run triad motors. Like, we had no business up there. But here we are. Pa- I'm passing Logano like he's sitting still. I'm racing Newman side by side. I can see Jimmy Johnson for me. I go by the 88. I'm like, what is happening? You know, like their catering budget is our budget for the season. So, uh, you know, that, that was so cool. But it's a real testament, you know, not to be all race car driver, but it is a testament to having, you know, what Marty Gaunt has done in terms of picking the right people, the right things that make a race team run well, the decisions they get made to do that. So it's a cool place for me because I didn't, but a year ago, ever think I'd ever drive a cup car again. You know, I just didn't foresee how it was ever going to happen, and this opportunity came about. Here I am as a cup driver, apparently. So it's going I, pretty I, well. I, every time I show up, I have to remind myself, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're in cup. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, wait. Are you, uh, that's Jimmy Johnson, and that's, uh, that's you know, Kyle Busch. You're on the same track as them. You're, they're competing against them. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, I forgot about that. I don't know. It's just it's an interesting place to be. I was at uh, Corey LaJoy's shop on Tuesday doing an interview for NASCAR America's Splash and Go, and yeah. I, what you were just saying there, Parker, about – Spending the money in the right places and doing things right, even with uh, way less manpower, way less funding, way less resources. I mean, that LaJoy's shop there at Go Fast Racing with that number 32 car, maybe 5,000 square feet, and they have 15 guys. Yep. And I think he said 10 or 11 travel every week. But they finished 12th in the Coca-Cola 600, which they is maybe ass. where you could have finished. Well, yeah, because we he got by me after after the restarted at the halfway break. It was pretty apparent something was going wrong with our car, and we started to slip back. That's when he got by me. But, you know, we kind of outran him for most of the beginning of the race. And we run with him pretty well, you know, often. Like, I think the 32, you know, if we're beating him and everyone behind them, then we feel like, okay, we're, we're doing what we should be doing, or at least in step of the 32. I mean, we're very – I feel like equipment-wise, that sort of thing, we're very much aligned and size of race team. You know, if we were to extrapolate our race team to a full-time team, I think that's the model that we could run to. But, you know, I think that that was an incredible finish for him. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to say we would have because who knows what would happen, but I'm just saying that was – I saw that too, and I was like, wow. Right. Co-Fast Racing finished 12th in the Coke 600, or he said the World 600, so that was really impressive. <laughs> and and they're a race team that, that definitely overachieves. They are also the business model that everyone's jealous of. So, because they're probably the one of the only race teams that they don't lose money, doesn't lose money, and performs well, <laughs> you know, performs at a level they're happy with, and can get great finishes, and has provided a jump start for a guy like Matt DiBenedetto. It'll probably be a jump start for Cole Joy to somewhere else, maybe if if he gets the right opportunity. So, uh, they're they, I, I would say more often than not, does that team get brought up in the Cup Garage whenever you talk about business models? Really? Oh my gosh! Every every dis- every time I talk about it with anyone, the team that always gets brought up is well, man, go fast racing. Who would think? Like, you know, there's the gold standard right over there. How weird is that? As, as Corey LaJoy said, the car that, yeah, we expect to qualify 20th to 30th every week. Mm-hmm. Like, I tried to give him an opening to say, so are you expecting to go to Pocono and, I don't know, a little bit of a moment, momentum booster here? He's like, no. <laughs> no <laughs> way. Said, We're going to qualify 20th to 30th, <laughs> and then hopefully some more cars will fall out, and maybe we get a top 25. Yep, that's how it goes. But to your point, Parker, like it is impressive that they're able to spend probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five million dollars per season, yep. go to thirty six races and have finishes like they had the Cook six hundred 
I guess, could you expand on that and explain to people, like, what are the market inefficiencies, like, that the bigger teams are not able to, you know, exploit the way a smaller team could? What is it? Is it just being more nimble because you have less people, less cars? Yeah, to I worry think, about? you know, the smaller team model, for some of them, performance is just a bonus. You know, if you look at some of those teams back there, they literally don't build it into the business model to perform. It is, we're running around, and if a great finish happens, great, but we built this business model around basically being last, right? Go fast is different. They want to perform a little, at least run to a level that they feel like at their budget level, they're achieving their goals. Uh, you know, we're similar. And I think the things that you look at are, you know, what are the pieces and people that allow you to excel when the opportunity arises, right? So that means that you are putting together a car that has new enough parts that it's going to survive a whole race. That means that you have just a good enough pit crew that if you are on the lead lap come late in the race, you're able to maybe hold the position or not lose a million, million places. It means, uh, you know, tire-wise, how smart are you buying your tires? So, you know, what happens from the 29th place on back teams is that we don't buy the full allotment right away, but then if we judge that our car is running really well, then you go buy all the tires. So it's a nimbleness there. There's a, fluid, a fluidity to the business model that allows you to just have the opportunity to put yourself and present yourself with the opportunity if it arises. Whereas there's some teams that just don't care. But I think when you look at GoFast, what they do well is that they just put themselves in position so when the opportunity arises, they can strike. And, and they've become the gold standard of that. And it's yeah. a really interesting thing because you think, you know, every other sport, you think the winningest team, that's the richest team in the sport. Or like, you know, they're making the most money and that owner, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the richest team in the sport might be Hendrick Motorsports. But they might not be the most profitable. You know, or Joe right. Gibbs race. It's like, that's crazy. Yeah. Margins and are not something we often talk about. We don't talk about margins. Analyze racing. So it's, yeah. uh, it's a funny dichotomy. I was actually just thinking about this. So not to just take over here. No, but, absolutely. I mean, we should probably conversate more. <laughs> no, should, I, should I, I want, stop talking? I want pure, unfiltered, unadulterated Parker <laughs> Kligerman. Because, like, let's face it, like you, you mentioned, unfortunately, Donuts, RIP, we haven't had enough yeah. podcast Parker lately. So, RIP go. Donuts. I, uh, I, I want to hear about what you've been thinking about here. So, I've been thinking about lately that racing is probably one of the only professional sports in the world where the athlete themselves has to actively think about the business model. Think about this. So for Corey LaJoy in that 32 car, or even my car, you know, if I go out there and I'm about to make a move and it's for a position, there's an element of you make that as a competitor, right, that move, that low percentage move because you're a competitor and you want that position, et cetera. But then there's, for our positions, we have to actively assess not only our drive as a competitor and our want as an athlete to do better, at the same time, the financial ramifications if that roof goes wrong, right? If, if Corey goes in three races and wrecks three cars, totals them, he's going to put that race team in a world of hurt for months. He knows if he can keep their best equipment intact over the course of a couple of weeks or months, it's going to reward him. I think that's something that you don't see anywhere else in the world. And motorsports, I don't care if you're even at the highest level of the teams. Maybe at the hippie top, it's not the, quite the same. But even, you know, you get to your... 20th place cars or 15th place cars, if you're wrecking cars, you are causing a financial strain on the team. You're causing a production issue that eventually leads you to be lesser in performance. So we're the only sport in the world that ever has in the element of competition and in the action of the competition, right. and in the middle of the game, you have to be thinking about the business model, which is why I find it funny that we 
end up discussing it all the time. It's such a huge topic, but well, that's why it permeates the whole thing. Yeah, it's yeah. insidious in a lot of ways. It's just it's pervasive. It's always surrounding everything, and it's funny to think about that way. That you're asked as a driver to make all these split second decisions on the track, making passes, judging fuel mileage, all these things, and then on top of it, oh, I've also got to think about like and if I put the car there, I might wreck it, and <laughs> yeah. then we're in a huge bind. Well, it's yeah. like, and I don't want people to think like, oh, I go off in the corner, I'm like, ah, damn, I can't waste this fifty grand, you know, right side this thing. It's not like that. I'm just saying, you know, there's elements where it creeps in where you just have to be smarter. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to how does a, a small team like that perform? They pick a guy like Corey LeJoy who can assess those things and get a great performance out of himself and out of the race team. And so that's why he is at Go Fast Racing. That's why they're having the great performance they are because they picked the right guy. I'm trying to take the Parker Challenge right now and think of another sport where it might come into play, that kind of thinking. And the only one... It's Ooh, not completely curious. analogous. Yeah. It, well, it's not a great analogy. Often I find that for some reason there are parallels between motorsports and golf. Oh, yeah. And so in golf, I don't know how this works now, but it used to be that to keep your PGA Tour card, you had to be in a certain range of the money winners list every year. You're right. I think you had to be in the top 150. Mm -hmm. So again, this is not a perfect analogy parallel <laughs> whatsoever, but maybe play a more conservative 18 in the last term of the year because you know it might be the difference between if I go for birdies or eagles here. Like it's not, it's different no, from other I think sports. It's, that's actually, I didn't think about that. You know, well, like yeah. other sports, it's just win or else. Like nothing else matters. If we don't win, who cares? Yeah, once the game starts, money don't matter. Golf and motorsports are sort of different in that where you finish... And the amount of money you earn in some points in one case or points in another case can kind of determine longevity yep. in a way, in a weird sort of yeah. no, survival I, way. That That's actually a great analogy. I think mean, they, they line up well. Yeah. So because it, that is they're making a decision in the midst of the competition. It is a, it's a financial decision in many respects. In Although way. the only thing I'll say is that theirs is kind of a finishing position. It's not so much literally... It's like, not equipment-based Yeah, it's all. not like this, this <laughs> yeah. product that has to be right. built and funded and everything. So I think it's interesting. I don't want people to be down upon that. I think it's a fascinating thing. To no, it is. Support. And yeah. I, but would we all love it to not be even in the conversation? Sure. But the reality is it is. So it's interesting to talk about. And even as GoFast like makes these decisions on the fly and says, "Hey, we're going to buy a full allotment of tires because we think we got a better shot," Corey was talking about this. You guys are still behind the eight ball in some ways because, oh, yeah. you know, as he explained it, they're running a chassis that's probably anywhere from three to four to five years old, and same thing. And the new chassis are lighter and run better. You can't make an older chassis that's heavier go faster, right? I mean, it's it's that it's the aerodynamics. Yeah. It's, you know, it's we don't go to wind tunnels. Uh, you know, we don't. You, there's just certain things that the other teams are able to push to the nth degree that we just can't. You know, we we run more to the model that if the race series, if the directors of a race series were dreaming like how they wanted their race teams to approach racing, they would want it to do our way. Because no one wants wind tunnels and shake rigs and all the crazy CFD stuff and every engineering bit that we come up with. It's honestly boring and it's annoying and it ruins good competition in racing. So... In essence, if that were all just to disappear and everyone was doing it our way, that'd be cool. The problem is it all exists, and they can afford it, and so it happens because you right. get paid to win, right? right? So, And they get sponsors because they win. But I think it's, uh, you know, yes, we don't have those things, but it goes back to you just have to make smarter decisions. You have to weigh decisions on the idea of what gets us that, ex that next tenth, the next tenth, the next tenth. And it comes down to, you know, sometimes for us, it is – you know, evaluating uh, something that's going on in the series right now with the new aerodynamic rules is there's some chassis uh, stuff that can be changed. I can't go too far into because I don't want to 
get in trouble. But there is chassis stuff out there that can now be changed that we discovered with the aerodynamics that for smaller teams like us, what I noticed when we went to – well, I, actually what I thought. So when we showed up to Charlotte, I was really worried because we hadn't done a mile and a half since Texas. And you know these, fa- these other teams are figuring things out and they're getting – you know, the field is going to separate. What I found out was actually it didn't quite work that way. But, uh, you know, we, I guess we had made advancements as well and just in terms of some of our own parts and pieces. And Mark Hillman, my crew chief, doing a great job with – modifying some things in our cars and just reading sort of as we call it like the uh, monkey see uh, wind tunnel which is you know we watch we look at f- photos and all that things on our cars and say <laughs> okay we got to do that too so they did a great job of that but you know I was worried that those big teams would get further away because of some of the things that we're starting to realize is going on aerodynamically and what you have to do to the chassis it's a massive change so for core the joys team for my team we can't just go cut clips off cars and redo them it's just not possible it's not financially beneficial. It's not like if we do that, we're going to go from running 29th and 30th to 13th and 14th. It might be that we're just a little closer to 26th. But it's that's you got to make those decisions. Yeah. So blame wind tunnels is that I've always said it. What yeah, did I, say? I was about to say that you should go check out NBCSports.com/slash/NASCAR <laughs> column from about two and a half years ago, written by a very accomplished author. Great headline, by the way. NASCAR teams blowing money on an idea whose time has gone with the wind. It's the stupidest thing in racing <laughs> is wind tunnels. Wind and tunnel, I just, I believe we are all constantly trying to out-engineer each other in a box of which has no No impact on the racing. Impact, only positive ruins it. Way. No yeah. positive impact on the racing. No one cares about it. It's massively expensive, and it has no relevancy to anything else in the world. And yet we continually do it. And the funniest part about aerodynamics is if tomorrow the if you didn't have rules in aerodynamics, we as human beings could build cars that humans couldn't possibly drive to the center of a corner between tire technology and aerodynamic technology. Yet we find ourselves still trying to engineer each other in the stupidest place, the most expensive place, which is aerodynamics. What kind of response did you get on that column, by the way, when you wrote that for us? People, I don't know. I can't, I can't remember back then. It was most read column ever, by yeah. the way, throw out there. I remember so there was... people were interested. Well, you know, the people who owned wind tunnels weren't happy. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, there's not a lot of those, though. So you know what? I I don't feel bad about it, and I will continue that. I will continually say, it's the dumbest thing we do till the day I die. Until they're gone. Until you maybe drive for a bigger team, and then yeah, and then you get all. Well, that's (laughs) the problem because then you have those things, and then you're like, it's your separator, and you're like, I don't want those guys to catch up. Keep doing this. So speaking of the beating the bigger teams, where were you then after stage two? We pitted right before the end of stage and put tires on and did a big change, but we were running way higher. We we did that on purpose, and we were going to stay out again, basically. But we, we were a solid 20. I'd say if you probably did a speed ranking, maybe we were like at that first half race, like a 21st place car. 21st, okay. Which and is insane. And ahead of some big name teams. Huge. I yeah. mean, I've, like, past Logano, like, he was sitting still. I was like, that's not possible. He must be down a cylinder. Guy who finished his second <laughs> later in the race. second. Yeah. yeah. So you finished 26 at the 600. Uh, before that, this was your sixth race of the year. You also had a couple of top 30s uh, at Texas and Talladega, and you opened the year with the 15th at the Daytona 500. You said it like a year ago. You didn't even think you might drive a cup car again. I mean, and yeah. now you're going to Sonoma, where you've had some success there uh, in stock cars, not only last year with top 25s at both Sonoma and Watkins Glen, but you won that ARCA race three years ago <laughs> yeah. to the day, like last <laughs> week was, yeah. at New Jersey. So Dominated that one. Things are uh, going, trending in the right direction. Yeah, they are. It's, it's fu- I mean, it's so funny. I will admit fully that a year and a half, a year ago, I was not actively searching for a cup ride. I just didn't even think it was a viability. I didn't think it was a possibility. 
you know, it just wasn't even on my radar. And then this came along because, you know, I was doing the part-time truck thing and I won Talladega in the October before last in 2017. And we had an amazing season in 2017 for that, for Henderson Motorsports, that small team on David Smith's Motorsport Analytics. We were like the, I think we were second or third in pier second behind Kyle Busch. And he ran seven races. I ran seven races. So it was pretty cool. Like we, we kicked ass and I didn't even think people were paying attention. Like when I won Talladega, not one person, team owner, nothing in any series came up to me and said a word. Uh, so I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, it just didn't, I didn't care. And I was so past the point of like, mm, I was coming up in boardrooms of people being like, yeah, let's get that guy to drive. I realized it wasn't happening. And then when you stop searching sometimes actually or something, it just pops up. And I got this call when I was filming Proving Grounds about uh, the first season about going and doing the 600 last year of Marty Gaunt. And I said, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And uh, we had a good finish there. And then one thing led to another. We did some road courses and had really great finishes. And then they did the deal with Jeff Earnhardt, which was a good deal for the race team. I mean, they got to run a lot of races. It was it was a positive deal. And then, you know, we got to this off season, and I kind of expected him. I didn't know where things stood. He kept saying, you know, yeah, we're going racing. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. We'll see. Like, I'm just <laughs> like, I don't have contracts or anything. It's all handshake stuff. And I think I'm just at the point where I'm like, sure, it's there's no way. Like, I'm normally I normally get burned by this point. So we get to December, and he's like, yeah, we're racing Daytona 500. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm driving. Yeah, you're driving. All right, let's go. <laughs> and then, you know, we did Daytona. It went really well, and he's like, we planned to do the first three, and then we got done. He's like, we're going to do 13 races here. Well, okay, done. Let's go do it. Good. So, yeah, yeah, it just sort of happened. So, but Marty got cool. noticed. Yeah, he actually, and you know what? He didn't tell me till literally, like, Daytona this year, or maybe it was Las Vegas. He goes, do you know when you won that Talladega race? He was with someone. He turned to him and he said, I want that guy to drive my cars. Wow. I was like, "There you go." What? Why did you never say anything? <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have been so demoralized if you yeah. had known that that had taken place. Well, it, this reminds me, Parker, of there was the August truck race at Bristol last year where you finished fourth. Yep. And I remember having a text exchange with you after that race because I think it was I don't know if it was an Instagram, an IG story video, or something like that you did where. Yep. I, I could just sense that, like, <laughs> it, it, it was like, this isn't enough. Like, I'm finishing top five. Uh, you know, I think you were close to maybe winning that we race. Were, we ran really well. Okay. Yeah. But the last run, we, we didn't. We fell off the front three a little bit. I don't know why I got the sense of watching your social postings that night, but I just sensed that there was a sort of, I don't know if hopelessness was the right word, but it's like, <laughs> no, no one's paying attention. I can yeah. get top fives in this series, and it's not going to matter. So it mattered. Oh, That's I think good. it was twofold, too, because, you know, here I am doing the TV stuff, right? And yeah, maybe I was wrong to make, you know, not to just go bum around the racetrack all day long, hoping and wishing for a ride like other guys do. I went and actively decided to build my name and be on TV and was given this great opportunity to go do it and felt like, all right, you know, I'm doing well at this. Like I'm in everywhere. I'm like, you can't turn on a NASCAR thing and not at least see me somewhere. And it was just like, and I'm proving I can run well and drive well. And yet still no one's, no one cared. No one's and I'm just like, you know, (laughs) I guess you, you sometimes you have to read the right on the wall to be like, okay, I get it. Like, yeah. I'm just, I'm not supposed to be here. Like, this is obvious. And then as it happened, you know, Marty came back and, you know, we've had been able to do some great things together. But it's, it's just, I wouldn't say I was fully demoralized. I don't want people to be like, oh, poor guy. Like, no. First of all, I'm not a, a sad story. I'm a success story because, you know, I'm a kid that just loved racing, wanted to be a race car driver really, really badly, got all the way to the top of the sport and now happens to get to broadcast it and have podcasts with you. Like, this is cool. I've got one of the coolest lives in the world. But, you know, as a 
competitor or anything. You want to be the best. You never imagined you're going to end up running, you know, small teams and trying to get great finishes for them. <laughs> it's never like in the in the dreams. But when you're doing it, you're thinking like, all right, I'm doing all the things. Like this is what I always say: go to small teams, run really, really well, win races. You know, be really marketable. Be the guy that people when they turn on their TV or anything like, oh, he's there. And then suddenly people are not. It's not working. You're like, oh, well, I guess this was not right. Yeah, so. that gets frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you're getting so good at the TV thing that you're sitting in the chair next to me <laughs> this past Monday hosting NASCAR America, which was pretty cool in and of itself. With a sore bum. With a <laughs> I, hurt my, I hurt my posterior in the, in the 600 I mean, sitting in my seat too It's got to be a first in the history of human civilization that somebody races 600 miles <laughs> and then literally like less than 24 hours later is hosting yeah. a national television program for an hour and you did quite Appreciate well. It. And during that NASCAR America, Parker, we heard some interesting interviews, I thought, from some veterans. Kevin Harvick wasn't all too happy, I think, with the way his race transpired, but yeah. I think he also showed some frustration about the rules and about the way the cars are racing. And uh, so I want to get your perspective on the 2019 rules, because not only Harvick, we've seen some other veterans express their misgivings. Kyle Busch certainly has been outspoken. Is there any sort of mindset advantage for you? I asked Corey LaJoy this as well. That, you know, It's his first full season. You're running cup races more so than you'll ever have run during the course of a season this year and don't have any pre preconceived notions. Certainly, you know, oh, it's lower horsepower, it's higher downforce, it's going to race differently than what cup cars would have been expected to race in the past, but you don't have the experience that like a Bush or a Harvick does with, I'm always used to this way and now we're doing it this way. Yeah, I, I think you got to remember who it's coming from. These are the guys that over the last five years have dominated the sport, right? Right. And I think it goes back to the wind tunnel thing. You know, race teams love a competitive advantage. And for those drivers, although they're still in the fastest, best cars, I think some of the frustration you saw from there is like if they get deeper in the pack, they can't maneuver themselves forward, right? Mm -hmm. In right. this package, and they can't do this and that. And funny thing for me is, though, I've never passed so many cars in my life, especially in a mile and a half or in cup because the restarts were so crazy. I could go to the high lane and pass five or ten cars. And it condensed the field that when I got done with final practice, I was within five tenths of the leader, where a year ago to a mile and a half, I was going to be 1.3 seconds off. And now I don't go a lap down as quick. And now the field's closer, so now there's more cars in the lead lap. And now there's more cars that are running competitively. So if you fall back to 10th or 15th, David Reagan and Michael McDowell might be there, and they're racing like hell, because guess what? This is the first time they've seen a top 10 in a while. So I think there's an element of who's saying it, because if you go talk to Michael McDowell, David Reagan, Bubba Wallace... Uh, Corey Joy, you might get, oh, no, this package is awesome. <laughs> this is badass. Because we're passing cars and we're, we're closer we're than we ever have been. We're yeah. running up, we're able to, on pure outright single lap qualifying speed, maybe we're still just where we were or whatever. But for whatever reason, this has allowed some condensing the field at these tracks where just a year ago, I just remember Texas last year, like we ran around and we were 1.3 seconds off and I mean, it was everything we could do. And this is the same, we're running the same damn chassis. So now we've just been given, just because you changed the body on it, we're running now basically seven tenths closer to the front of the field. I think that's a win. Yeah. You know, yeah. like for, for a series that is, as the only series in the world, in my opinion, that's as close to Formula One in terms of technology and separation in terms of the fast cars to the slow cars, we've condensed the field somehow just through the use of a different aerodynamic package. An engine package. I yeah. think it's a cool thing. So if they're frustrated, I get it. They are the best drivers in the world right now. No doubt. Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch. Kyle Busch is probably one of 
the most talented drivers to ever live on the planet. I get their frustration because they want, as race drivers, they want to just lead laps. They want to drive something that's super, super hard to drive. And that's different because I'm not saying this is easy to drive because it's not. It's a different type of hard to drive. As Jimmy Johnson said, we're going so damn fast in the corners. You know, it's weird because you go down the straightaway and you can almost rest and then you go off in the corner and you suck in a little bit and get ready for this crazy amount of speed you're going to carry. But, you know, race car drivers, we want to drive something with our right foot, right? We want to use the pedals. We want 1,000 horsepower and aerodynamics, and I get that. But we have gotten so smart as a sport, motorsports as a whole, that we have to restrict. If we can't restrict the technology, then we've got to do something that provides a better show. Then we have that, you know, last year was supposed to be low downforce, yet 90% of the teams were making as much downforce as the old car underneath the car because they have rolling road wind tunnels and they go and do that stuff and they do all the simulation and their cars are within a 99 you know the other thing Landon Castle talked about with me all the time is that you know if you look 15 years ago not to rant again I'm rambling aren't I no no it's uh, good insight 15 years ago when you looked at a, the winning car in the cup series you know if say if 100% of the capability of the car was available right they the winning car might have hit 89% or 90% of efficiency in terms of setup with the advancements in all the simulation we have now and all the technology and by lowering the cars down the ground and everything, we both believe that what's happened is it's not that they got any better than the smaller teams or anything. It's that their ability to find, to get closer to that 100% efficiency slash optimal setup, optimization of the race car is now within, it's got to be 99.9% at times. Just right? through high fidelity software. Exactly. That's crazy. So... It's why Formula 1, the cars are so damn static. When you watch them go around a racetrack, they're so damn static because they're so perfectly set up. They're, they, in Formula 1, the winning car is at 100.00% of the optimization of the setup, most likely. Like that's just, That is the ultimate speed that thing could possibly go because they're using space-age technology. You know, they, People talk about, man, I, we just hit the setup. I had that magical car where they were two-tenths faster in the field. Well, it's because back then, everyone else was at 90%, and you suddenly had a car at 94% of optimization. Well, then, yeah, you were going to have that extra 3% or 4% on everyone, and bam, that's your two-tenths. Like, I had a truck race at Iowa a couple years ago in 2012 where we were two-tenths faster in the field, no matter what I did. I didn't, it didn't matter how I went around the track. We could just carry more speed. We had somehow, by accident, hit <laughs> optimization, you know, high optimization. So right. Landon once told me that, and I was like, man, you're a genius. That is exactly what it is. Like, it's, it's, it's basically how close can we get this mechanical device to be at its absolute optimum. And right now, with how much technology there is, we're able to get so damn close. And there's no way to put the genie back in there's the no bottle. There's no way to put it back in the bottle. So say, we've yeah. got to fight against that. Unless we found a way to literally you know, take away all that stuff. But as racers, we're going to find another way. Then we've got to find another model that gets us back to, okay, how do we you know, stop that? Because... I was just listening to there's this YouTube show Russell Ingle from V8 Supercars and this and his uh, guy Paul Morris. It's called The Enforcer and the Dude, <laughs> and they're doing this YouTube show. They did they had episode three come out recently. This, they're going to be amazed if they feel like this kid in America is suddenly <laughs> watching this thing. But I watched it and they had the uh, they had the old the guy who basically brought V8 Supercars from being this you know sort of subcategory to blowing it up in the mid 2000s. His name was Tony Cochran, and he talked about how it was all they, – they were talking about all the problems in V8 supercars right now. And it was so funny because you could – if you just took away V8 supercars, or they – you know, now it's called supercars, which they go into is the dumbest thing ever, but I agree with that. Nonetheless, <laughs> you extrapolate out. You could put that in any race series in the world right now. And all they're talking about, there's too much technology. The front teams have gotten too far ahead. We're too smart for what, our own good right now. 
And it all came back to we keep forgetting the core reason for a motorsport, entertainment, fans. So if we're spending money in places that the fans literally don't know slash don't care, then what the hell are we doing? Why? Right. I just w- Motorsports also needs to get away from the fact that we're doing anything for the road because at the end of the day, we're marketing cars. We are not developing cars. And 90% of the motorsports, the only one that could possibly say it may be prototype sports cars. But so it's like we're in this weird nexus between what we used to think we should do, which was that we were developing cars, and what we're actually doing, which is just entertaining people, right? Yeah. And like I just read this uh, amazing book called Black Noon. Have you read that? I've heard. I've not had a chance to read it. I've heard about it. On yes. the Indy 500? Yes. Oh, my God. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. So it's about the 1964 Indy 500. Where they have the Fire, huge and death and Fire and death. Yeah, and they go through every driver in the field, and they go through all the things back then. It was so funny, some of the things that were happening back then. Uh, in terms of how fast the cars were changing, the technology and all that stuff. But even back then, they were worried about, you know, they knew they were developing technology, but they were worried about the show. So it's just like, it, maybe it nev- it's always, hmm. you know, the that more things change, the more things they say the same. When I think of the Indianapolis 500 in the 60s, I think of, oh, it was a test bed for Detroit. It was like where a lot of spinoff products for passenger cars came from Indy as a test bed. I wouldn't have thought of it as being an entertainment perspective at all. Back then, the show was how fast can you go? So when they'd set new record speeds, they'd get 100,000 people to show up for qualifying. Because they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to hit 161 miles an hour this year. That's insane. You know, like, that was the show. Speed is no longer the show. We know we can make a car go as fast as we want, so our show has to be entertaining racing. Which Indy, to its credit, the Done a great most job. recent Indy 500 being proof positive of it, yeah, has figured out we're not going to go 240 or 245 miles an hour on a lap average, but we're going to yep. give you tight, close racing. Still damn fast. Two, fast over enough. 230 is still pretty good. I was on Sirius XM this morning uh, guest hosting on the morning drive, and we had Jim Campbell from Chevrolet. We had David Wilson from Ooh, Toyota wow. Racing Development. And both of them talked about this hot new topic as relating to the Gen 7, because Mark Rushbrook of Ford has also talked about this since January, that the Gen 7 car, you know, there's been a lot of focus on what it's going to look like body-wise and, you know, the relevance and all that, but they apparently are going to build in capability for hybridization. And it's not going to happen in 2021 when the car allegedly will roll out. But yep. David Wilson said today, it's not a matter of if, it's when for hybrid-style technology in cup cars. Rushbrook says, hey, we're not saying it's across the board. It could be you look at it for, I don't know how this would work because then you're talking about two engine programs, but he was kind of hinting at, oh, maybe you do summit road courses, you do different ones on ovals. It was interesting, all of it. So the Parker Kligerman perspective, (laughs) as we're talking about relevance of manufacturers, production cars to racing, and you're right, like there's not as much as there used to be at all, but now we're talking about hybrids. Hybrids being a, a place that manufacturers are going with street cars and how that relates to race cars and, and can it to some degree. Well, I want to preface this by saying I drive a Toyota and Toyota does a lot for me and our <laughs> race team. So I'm very pro whatever Toyota said. Uh, <laughs> and Dave Wilson, he's a very smart man. And, uh, he's we, a smart dude. We're very, we're very behind TRD and everything they want to do. Um, no, but I, I'd say, look, there's a story I recently read and it was one of the higher ups at Renault F1 team. Right, And Renault is a midfield F1 team right now because they refuse to spend as much money as Ferrari and Mercedes, yet they know there's a marketing benefit to being an F1. And therefore, they you know, run to their budget and they hope over their five-year plan from, I know they did that Netflix documentary, that over the five-year plan, eventually they are closer to the front and they can run at that budget level racing for a championship. One of the higher-ups there said, 
he had an interesting conversation. He was probably at, you know, they, they do a lot of these galas and things, and he was at some place, uh, you know, champagne caviar probably. And <laughs> we're discussing with this group or the sponsor, this potential sponsor about F1 or anything, and the guy said, you know, I love Formula E. It's electric. There's electric, you know, it's all electric-based. It's good for the environment and everything. And he goes, you know, we're electric too. We have hybrid technology, Curse. And the guy goes, never even knew that. Really? And he's one of their sponsors. That's crazy. Had no idea. No idea. And Kurz was given a lot of marketing and PR big and yeah. everything. And and here's the thing about hybrids. Yes, they're I'm you know obviously I'm in the road car side of things with proving grounds. I'm very into cars. I don't see the hybrid lasting as long as people believe. The transition from gasoline cars being you know your your internal combustion engine to the eventual just full on electric is going to happen quicker because the market demands it. The market's going to demand it because that's the world that that's what my age group that's what the that's what they're going to want. They need that. That's what the rideshare companies are going to need. That's what the when you're you know those sorts of things are going to drive. The market is going to drive us straight to electric. So there won't be hybrid, a transitory period where hybrid. I think we're are living dominant. through it right now. So if you're talking ten years from now, why? What what are we doing? You know, like I, in my opinion. It, it would put you behind the eight ball because then you've invested this massive amount of money in something that within maybe five years later is obsolete. And now you're back to, oh, the manufacturers don't care because we're not electric. I've thought, because racing is more of an entertainment thing and if you want NASCAR to be more relevant, I thought a cooler thing, and this comes out of Formula 1 as well, which is that Mercedes a couple years ago put out this deal where they basically showed that their internal combustion engine inside their F1 car was the most efficient use of gasoline per horsepower ever. And I thought, well, that's cool as hell. And I was like, if we're going to talk about efficiency, we want to be a, a forward-thinking sport about technology, then let's go do that. Let's set gallon marks. All right, next year you can only have 120 gallons a race in the pits, everything. The next year, 110. Hmm. A year from then, 100, 100. A year from then, 75. Will it affect the racing, really? Possibly a little bit. There might be more strategy. Will it drive the manufacturers to have to become super efficient with every engine design we use and that sort of thing and have to drive us to a whole new world of engine efficiency? Do you remember back in the, what was it, the 70s, 80s, the 100-mile-per-gallon yeah. carburetor? That's, I think we have the technology to get there. Not the carburetor, but you know we have the technology to get to a minuscule amount of gasoline creating enough horsepower and performance that would be relevant to people being like in this transition period that the gasoline engine lives on it might give it more longevity than we even believe. So you're like hypermiling, but you're still doing it yeah. with a race. With, with a with race and performance. And performance. That to yeah. me would be interesting. That to me would be something that drives us forward. All the, the prototype series and the F1, everyone done curves and everything, and no one cares. <laughs> Literally no one cares. I've never heard anyone go, that curve system's pretty cool, <laughs> man. I'm glad they just dropped that electricity off the corner that you can't tell is being used, and yeah. you can't tell it's being used in an F1 car, and you don't know when they're regening, and you don't, or they have the little blinky light. You don't know that. It's like, what are we doing? It's Once again, is there a guy in the grandstand or a woman or a kid who co showed up there because there was a curse system. Unlikely. Unlikely. Highly unlikely. And if you are not a regular reader of Parker Kligerman columns, you also <laughs> are no. probably aren't aware that uh, electrified racing probably also isn't the answer. Fully electrified. You did the yeah. e racing thing in Brooklyn. So you that covered was that a couple years ago, and we're kind of less than impressed, I think. As a, At as that a time, leader. absolutely. I felt like it was a marketing gimmick, and I still yeah. think it, it, it's become far more serious. I'll mm -hmm. give them credit. The racing in the new car has been better. Um, you know, not having to jump out of cars is better. I think they learned some of their mistakes about their treating the fans, you know, in terms of think they were better than everyone else, and now they try to cater a little bit to the show. 
uh, boost thing they do and that sort of stuff, which is cool. And I actually think that's really entertaining racing. I love watching that series. I mean, they hit each other. I hate when they penalize them for hitting because they should just let that go on. It's so <laughs> awesome. They, you know, the cars accelerate super quick to their maximum mile, mile per hour. Uh, I actually think it's it's pretty cool now. I, I think they've done a good job of that. And I don't foresee uh, – I'm so conflicted with NASCAR, though, on, like, going electric. Because I'm just like, I don't know. It's not in the DNA, as they say. Well, yeah. I, I, I just don't – and I know Roger Penske – said at the Indy 500, he's like, you know, I think we're not going to be fully electric for a long time. And that's why I'm like, then don't go in the middle. Just do what we're doing, but do it better than anyone else. Like, let's just make the best version of what we do. Get 100 miles to the gallon. Let's get 100 miles to the gallon with a a V8 or a V6 turbo. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. But let's go do that and become the best at that and know that we have the sound and there might be a sound and there might be uniqueness to it and that sort of thing. And then we become fully unique within the realm of what's going on in the end. Always appreciate your insight on all things high tech. So I want to wrap up here with esports. Parker Kligerman, Jeff Burton, is it Burton Kligerman? Burton Kligerman Esports. Burton Kligerman Esports having well, I guess for everybody it's their debut year. How's it gone and what do you <laughs> think of is it what, what's the official title? Is it the NASCAR Esports League? It is the eNASCAR iRacing Peak Entry Series. And you are an accomplished iRacer, so this is Yeah, I've been in iRacing forever and this series has been around. This is the tenth year and I've always thought it was a really cool deal. It's gone through a couple different name changes, but essentially it's the top form of motorsport esports, in my opinion, in the world and not just my opinion. Right now, with their payout, it is the largest. They're doing over a hundred thousand dollars payout this year to the drivers. You know, the champion makes something like forty thousand dollars. They win up the top three of every race, make money, um, and it's a pretty cool deal. And it's very, it's taken very seriously. You've got you know a lot of very talented guys that are the top of sim racing and esports, motorsports. Um, for us, we have a driver named Logan Clampett and Ashton Crowder. To, well, Ashton Crowder's our young driver. He's 16. Logan's, I think, 18 or 19 right now. Logan's done really well. Ashton's had some of his rookie issues there, but he's had some good runs. But the cool thing is what's happened to this series this year. You know, so they did what I had written this thing, I don't know, a year or two ago about, like, the Ultimate Esports League and how racing, you know, esports had a possibility of doing what racing can't, which is because there's no mechanical deal and there's no overhead. We could make, like, the ultimate league that was solely based on driver talent and that's what they've done and so it's really impressive and they brought all these race teams in like junior motorsports and joe gives racing and roush fenway and burton kligerman esports and some real other esports teams uh, austin dillon's got a team steve latart's got a team he does yeah. and it's really cool because what's happened is you know last year if there was x amount of people watching these races it's exploded now and it's really cool seeing the response of people out there saying, wow, I didn't know this existed. This is so fun to watch. I have friends and family who watch the races with me because they think it's so exciting and it's so awesome to watch. And here's the thing. It's perfect because we always talk about, well, what's that guy's level of equipment? Uh, the barrier to entry to becoming a race car driver is so high. It's just rich people. That sort of thing. None of that exists. This is like the truly egalitarian yes. motorsports series. That's the word. Solely on merit. Solely Just on merit. How good are you as a driver? How, if it. you're sitting on your couch right now, <laughs> I don't care if you're 16 or 60. If you can feasibly become, over the next year and a half, you could feasibly enter the draft for the peak series or the E-NASCAR iRacing series within the next two years if you're good enough. And your spend will be a couple hundred bucks on a wheel and computer. I think that's pretty cool, and that you can cool. be racing to make thousands of dollars as a professional driver. That is what is so cool about esports, and I just think uh, if we do this right as a sport, 
it's also the only eSport in the world that actually does the action that we do in real life with wheel and pedals. So if we do this right, if we, if we the arbiters of, of this deal, being the team owners and the iRacing and NASCAR and everyone, I think there's a serious chance to make something truly great out of uh, what the Peak Series is right now. And you are a believer that if it works and is done correctly, that eventually we will see a transition from digital world to real world where a esports driver will be a racer in a real life NASCAR series someday. I absolutely think so. And I absolutely, I, my hope is that, you know, you have the RTA that made the series, the heat series, but I have a reserved judgment. Some of the things I want to say there, but nonetheless, <laughs> that series, you know, my dream has always been that someone sits on their couch. It's, at six or 15, 13 years old, they play the, the console game. They get, become the best of that. They get to that league. They use, they win or do well there. They're given all the tools and basically a little the fun to get to iRacing. They use iRacing to get to the Peak Series, and from the Peak Series, they enter a real car. That's the dream. And I think it's possible, but as I said, if we do this right, if we bicker and we fight and there's, there's issues and people, you know, all the same politics that exist in real racing seep into this, then there'll be an issue with it. But I think if it's done right, there's an absolute chance that it can become, that pipeline can exist. Well, I know you've already convinced some people. I hope I'm not saying anything out of turn here about your partner, but I think it's fair to say initially Jeff Burton was yeah. a little bit of a skeptic. Oh, I had to convince him. <laughs> and now he is bought in. <laughs> well, I think the one thing I sold him on, it was not even, you know, it wasn't the action as much as I said, Jeff, what's the biggest problem of getting becoming a race car driver? Barrier to entry. We just effectively demolished the barrier of entry. And it's so realistic at the iRacing level that real drivers like myself, we use it to train. We use it to be prepared. We use it for fun because it's realistic. Why would we fight something like this that could give us the opportunity to open up the sport to a whole set of people out in the world that had never been able to experience the sport at all in any capacity, in any real capacity? Tony Cochran from that V8 Supercars thing, he used to say with the V8 Supercars deal, how do we widen the pyramid, the base of the pyramid? How do we get the pyramid larger that sucks in people to the sport, to the, to the absolute pinpoint, which is the NASCAR Cup Series or for them the V8 Supercars Series? This allows us to widen that pyramid, make it bigger, consume more people into the sport and give them a chance to say, this is a cool thing. I can do it. I can make it there. I think it's a great thing, and as a young driver who fought like hell through times of no money and getting told you'll never drive a race car again because you're out of money, this is the coolest thing ever to see it get this sort of professionalism. Widening the pyramid without necessarily shrinking some aspects of it, whether yeah. it be late model or whatever. Wait. There's all that's still going to exist. Grassroots is not going to be. It's just going to be a different. We've always had multiple paths. Yeah. Why can't this be a path? There's, racing has, has always. You know, people always like to compare, like, well, how, you know, in football you go, or basketball you go, uh, you know, you go from high school to college to the, the pro leagues. We never had that singular pipeline. So let's just add another one that widens the pyramid bigger than ever before. It's a cool path to follow. And we always enjoy following your path, whether it's on racing, whether it's on NASCAR America. Appreciate I appreciate it. you coming on here and providing so much insight. I won't let it go 15 or 16 months <laughs> again. We'll, we'll do this again maybe no, for the year. Maybe that's why I talk so much because I was just so <laughs> pent up. <laughs> it, hey, it needs to come out, man. People need to hear you <laughs> drop wish, knowledge. I wish we talked more. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's it's all on me. Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Our thanks again to Parker Kligerman for another insightful podcast. As noted, you can see Parker again in a car at Sonoma Raceway in a couple of weeks. And you also can see him regularly on NASCAR America. He typically is on Thursday's program doing an excellent job on the Motorsports Hour 
with Chris Devota and AJ Allmendinger, whom I also need to get on the NASCAR and NBC podcast soon. AJ has done great work in his first season at NBC Sports Group. Some good stuff coming up on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Had a very fun conversation today with Daryl Waltrip, who was in a reflective mood nearing the end of his broadcast career. That episode will be out the Wednesday before Sonoma, which is Daryl Waltrip's last race with Fox. And I've got a podcast next week that I think you'll enjoy. Someone who is far less well-known. In fact, I'd say you're almost guaranteed to have no knowledge of this person whatsoever, but they play an important role in the NASCAR traveling circus and have an interesting story to tell. So stay tuned for that. The NASCAR and NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any feedback, you can send to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.